Today is Palm Sunday, and um, I want to begin by just showing a video of what Palm Sunday represents. So Nancy, why don't you go ahead and play that? Just think of being there. Watching Jesus come into the city on a donkey, people cheering, excited. Now we have to take note that even though this is being Holy Week and they, we were celebrated as a king, recognize one of the nuances to that is that as they were looking for a king, they weren't looking for a spiritual king. They were looking for a king that would overthrow the Roman government. That's what they really wanted. They, but they had heard the, the, about the resurrection of Lazarus and all of the miracles he's done. And man, this guy, maybe he would set us free from Rome. But you think of that week, Holy Week. After that celebration, he heads back to the town of Bethany, a village, Bethany, just a short walk away. And Monday he gets up and he goes into Jerusalem again. And this time he heads to the temple and he goes into the temple square and there's a square that's now filled with animals and money changers and people that were making a profit rather than worshiping God. And he drives them out on that Monday. By the way, this was the second time he had scattered the money changers. He heads back to the village of Bethany as well, spends the night there again. On Tuesday, he gets up and he comes back into Jerusalem. And he walks into the city and Jesus, always the teacher, he continues to teach. And he begins to teach on faith that day. And a little bit later, though, as he's teaching, obviously the Pharisees and those religious leaders that weren't happy with him, Jesus begins to go after them, and he denounces them, and he actually pronounces judgment over them. And he calls them names like, you hypocrites, you're blind, you blind guides. And folks, that would have not, they would have not been too happy to hear that. But he leaves the city. He heads back again to Bethany and he gives the Olivet Discourse where he uses some apocalyptic language in terms of there's going to be tribulation, there's going to be suffering, and ultimately there's going to be a triumph in the kingdom. That was Tuesday. But Tuesday also marked a very important event in that Judas sets about to make his plans goes to the religious leaders and offers and they get some money to turn him over to Jesus. That was Tuesday. Wednesday, a day of silence. The Bible really doesn't tell us what happened on that Wednesday. I just can't help but wondering, was he spending time with his mother, with the disciples? Was he just praying all day? But I think one thing is for certain, that Jesus knew that he was going to be coming to the end of his mission. He was aware of it on that Wednesday. And on Thursday, he sends Peter and John into the city and they began to prepare for that last supper that they were going to eat with him. And they they get ready the upper room where Jesus would come and he would begin to eat a meal with those 12 and remember that he washes their feet. And at that time period, that event, Judas leaves and does his thing. 
Now, this is where I, I want to jump into some texts that speak of that upper room. See, Paul, I'm going to look at, if you've got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but Paul records this, but recognize Paul wasn't there. Now, either he would have been taught by Jesus himself, or he would have learned it from the other apostles. But I want to read what Paul wrote, and understand the context of this is that Paul is writing to a church that is not growing up. <laughs> to say it differently, love was curved into themselves in this church. Look how it reads there, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? For shall I say to you, Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Here was a church where they were not looking out for the interests of others. Their reputation of selfishness, again, love curved in on themselves, and Paul wants more from this group of people. But he does something a little bit different here in looking to present them complete in Christ. He brings them back to the work of Christ, and he begins to tell them about the upper room again, that experience that we are going to be participating even here today. And he takes bread and he he breaks it and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, Paul is saying, church, remember Jesus and what he done, what he has done. Uh, This series is titled Broken. And, And last Sunday, Scott reminded us that we live in a broken world. Sin has created havoc. It messes up every heart that comes into the world that's born. It messes up the systems of the world. It messes up families, nations, and even churches. See, sin pushes us to claim the right to decide what is good and what is true and what is right and leave God out of that equation. See, the broken world has ignored the creator of the universe. 
And it just keeps limping along. Now, one of the things I do find ironic is I was a Bible major, not a Bible, a history major in college. And um, one of the things that always I just, people don't read history. Because I look at a culture around us, and even for us at times, we buy into this idea that this world is getting better. And I go, just read history. Wave after wave where sin comes into the world, and it just seems to ebb and flow, and yeah, there'll be peace for a while, and all of a sudden, it goes down a path where wave just keeps, sin just keeps rushing over us. But today... The title of the sermon, A Savior, Broken for Us. So today is really about the communion table. Calling us back, and to say it again, Christ was broken for us. Holy Week. Just think of the disciples sitting at that table And getting this picture where he's breaking the bread to those disciples and saying, this is me. This is me. Broken for you. Now, I got to put a little bit of side note here. There's some people who don't like the idea. They think it's a contradiction where Christ says this and that it's my body was broken for you. They actually don't like that. Um, They think it doesn't fulfill prophecy. By the way, there was a prophetic understanding that John writes that no one of his bones shall be broken. Now, if you did a word study, we're not going to go there today. There really is not a contradiction. Matter of fact, I'm just going to put a quote from John Gill when it says Christ's body was broken for us. Look at what he writes. For though a bone of him was not broken, his skin and his flesh were torn and broken by the blows with the rods and the fists, by the whippings and the scourgings, by thorns, nails, and spears. Three out of the four Gospels say that he was whipped and that he was beaten. That was common before a crucifixion for those to be beaten. But we come to this day of this symbolism. What does it mean? Why did Christ have to be broken for us? So that's where we need to go today. And I'll tell you, my list isn't all-inclusive. If we dig into Scripture, there'd be a lot more. But one of the hopes here that I have for us is today is, frankly, to worship God. To pause and go, as we look at this week, that we would remember what He has done for us. And second, I think for us to feel the weight of what He did for us. And learn to appreciate and maybe just love him just a little bit more as a result of it. But look at the first text, Luke 10, 27. Let me connect it with this. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Words of Jesus. But could I ask us a question here? How many of us here have done this perfectly? Anybody want to raise their hand? We haven't done it perfectly. Now, realize this is a quote of Jesus from Deuteronomy 6. And God gave the command to Israel to center your lives on loving God. And it didn't happen. They, 
And I would say it this way, we, we've chosen independence and we've loved lots of other things other than God. I, I keep thinking Romans 1 pops into my mind, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. But here's where we have to again understand the, the depth and the breadth of sin. We keep thinking that sin is just a moral action, a, a lying, stealing, cheating. That's where we keep getting hung up. We think that's sin. But understand, in fact, the core of sin is just not keeping this commandment, the great commandment. The heart of sin is preferring and loving other things over God. Just loving stuff rather than God is at the heart and the core of what sin is. And realizing that when we give our love to something other than God and we leave him out of the equation, it is a type of insult to God himself. He's the ruler of the universe. He created the universe. He is the one that deserves our utmost worship and our love. And the consequences? What comes to mind is Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. See, God made the universe highest authority and he says just loving other things and loving himself, than him, who he is, deserves judgment. Matter of fact, not to punish it would actually be unjust. We'd have to dig into the scriptures there, but the realization that just our inability to do it, and it just, at that place, we deserve the wrath of God, just for not keeping that great commandment. Just being independent and saying, I want to do what I want to do, deserves the punishment of God. You know, but there is good news, the grace of God. The grace was literally his son to take what we deserved It's the reason that God sent his son into the world to divert the sin's punishment from us and it directed it toward his son. If you follow along on the outline, let me say it this way. His body was broken to absorb the wrath of God that we deserved. Now, there's actually a biblical term. You maybe don't know it. Some versions don't have it. Propitiation. It's the idea that God sent his son, he loved us, but he became the wrath-absorbing entity for us that we deserved his wrath. First uh, John 4.10 is, is a text on that. But let me give you another result beyond just even absorbing the wrath of God. Look at Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, number two in your notes, let me fill that in. So we escape the broken body means that we escape the curse of the law. And there's no escape from it if it wasn't for Christ. And because of the curse, he was the one that paid the penalty. You know, okay, you might go on, what's the curse? What's this really about? 
Uh, look at Galatians 3.10. really describes it here, what he's talk, Paul write, is talking about. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. You understand, that can include the great commandment and all of those things that are written about that the Old Testament speaks to as the law. But even beyond that, functionally, it is this, how we apply it to our lives. It's people believing that they can do good works to earn salvation and have a right relationship with God because they can become good people by doing good works. That belief is cursed. Because one itty-bitty sin, the result is death and eternal separation from God forever. And he hung on the tree. And it's saying that the penalty was fully paid by his death and his broken body. He became the curse and it took our curse away. But there's another reason as well this morning. Number three, to reconcile us to God. Reconcile, reconciliation. He broke his body because we needed to be reconciled. Look at the Romans 5.10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? This concept of reconciliation means that two parties are restoring a relationship together. The fall, Genesis 3, broke it apart. But recognize this, the reconciliation started with God doing the initiating. He's the one that worked first in order to reconciliation to take place. He sent his son into the world to become the judgment for the world, to suffer, be cursed, and be broken so that the potential for reconciliation can now happen. That's what God, God did the most of the work, folks. Matter of fact, our part in terms of reconciliation is really quite simple. We only have to receive the most valuable gift we ever could have in the gift of the Son dying for us. That's our part. From God's part, a son, death, a broken body, becoming a curse. He had the work He did the work for us. There's another reason. Comes out of Romans chapter 5, a very weighty passage. Look at this, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since there we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. But verse 8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Number four, your notes, his body was broken so that God could show his love for sinners. The father sent his son 
to be broken, not for the righteous people, but for those who did not deserve it, who do not deserve it. Now, do you realize something in this world, when it comes to sacrifice and when we think of the hardship of it, I think of parents and you think of the measures that parents will go and do because they love their kids. You know what? I've known some parents who almost are willing to go broke for their children. They're willing to give organs to their kids. I think there's even parents, as parents, we go, I die for my kid. So, so as parents, we understand that. But let me put a picture on the screen here. Here's a homeless man laying in a, at a doorway. We're willing to give this guy some money, maybe. But can I ask you a question? Would you be willing to go broke for this guy? Would you be willing to give him a kidney? How about your life for this man? Trapped in unrighteousness. Do you you understand the tension that we have? The degree that Christ is willing to die for this man, die for us, die for every sinner in this world. But I want to call us back to the immensity of that. And I want to play a video of that Friday. Let's try to play that. We'll see if this shows up this time. It didn't work in the first service. This man has done nothing to deserve death. So I will have him scourged and let him go. You are obliged to release one man to us at this festival. Release to us Barabbas. 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 And away with this man. Oh, Sergeant, 
beaten because of our sin. But I don't know if we stop and realize this. This represents his love for us. And we cringe at the ugliness of it. But you go, that is love. He did this even before we responded to him. See, the breath of God's love is shown in the weight and the cost of the sacrifice as he saves us. He gave his only son, John 3.16. But do we stop and ponder the enormity of his love? Let me just put a statement on the screen so you see it and hear at the same time. Our understanding of the measure of his love increases when we consider and realize the degree of our unworthiness of that love. The more that we understand the unworthiness of our sin, understand this, we begin to understand the greatness of his love. Look at Romans 5, 7 again. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. See, people, I think, can even come to a place, even in this week, where they think that they deserve his love. People think, I'm a pretty good person. I deserve heaven. And they can even, in that, acknowledge that, yeah, he died on the cross. The bottom line is when one's thinking is that I'm not that bad of a person and now I deserve eternity with him, that is pride to the nth degree. See, I deserve it because I'm not that bad. That is arrogance. See, giving our love, listen, to anything else other than God deserves death and separation. Now, we realize that our debt demanded that sin, there had to be a price to pay. And there could only have been a divine sacrifice to pay it. See, a broken body becoming a curse. And the death of Christ is the supreme expression of the love of God. That he loved me and gave himself to me. See, but it's our sin that cuts us off from God. And all we really can do is plead mercy. Look at Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus paid the highest price possible for us personally. It was the greatest gift possible. Look at what the Isaiah the prophet wrote from 53, 5. But because of our sins, he was wounded, beaten because of the evil we did. We are healed by the punishment he suffered, made whole by the blows he received. But here's the challenge. We rate evilness and sin. And too often, we're just not like that person over there. You know, I was attuned with my son in Austin and the bomber in Austin. I was watching it really closely. 
And, and we look at the evil of someone just planting bombs to blow people up. Or, or we look at a rapist. Or maybe the worst of the worst, a child molester. And, and we look at those people and we say, they don't deserve God's love. They deserve God's wrath. But you realize that thinking is actually arrogant? The fact remains that once we claim to decide the rules as to how to live and direct our love to anything else other than God, we deserve the same wrath. We're in the same category as someone who is a child molester. So there's a fifth reason. Because of his love for us, number five, it's to give eternal life to all who believe on him. See, Jesus made it plain that rejecting eternal life that he offered in that reconciliation results in a misery of eternity in hell forever. But many people come to Easter and think that Easter's this nice holiday, Easter bunnies and eggs. It's about a family weekend away, getting away. It's a vacation. Oh, oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, there's that Jesus thing that he did. It's not that necessary. Is that how we think of Easter? You know, John 3, 16, for God so loves the world. But have you ever remember, do you remember John 3, 17? Look how it reads, God sent his son into the world. He did not send him to judge the world guilty, but to save the world through him. People who believe in God's son are not judged guilty, but people who do not believe are already judged because they have not believed in God's only son. They are judged by this fact. The light has come into the world, but they did not want light. They wanted darkness because they are doing evil things. Everyone who does evil hates the light. They will not come to the light because the light will show all of the bad things they have done. Whoever does not believe is condemned already and the wrath of God remains on them. But for those who trust Christ, you think of it looking ahead and no eye has seen, I don't have it on the screen, no ears heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him as we look forward and we can celebrate. See, one day, because of a broken body, because of a broken Christ, we are going to see God's consuming glory in all its greatness. We will see his goodness and we will know and experience the love of God. See, this is eternal life that you know the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Folks, Christ was broken for us. Now, there might be some here today you haven't been a part of that second process in the reconciliation. You've never accepted what he's done for you. You've never bowed before him and said, you know what, I know I'm separated before you and that I am a sinner and my invitation to you is that you would give your heart to him, that you would, in your heart, you would say, Jesus, I want you to come into my life and make yourself known to me and he will do it through the Holy Spirit. 
So as we look at today, think back to that upper room. Think back to Christ taking that bread with his disciples and saying, this is my body broken for you and for you and for you and for you and for me. My goal is that throughout the week, would you just pause and every day, maybe you're doing the Bible read through that, you would just pause and give God thanks that Christ's broken body saved you. He became a curse for you. His blood was shed for us. And we need to celebrate and we need to let people know that freedom is found in the Son. Let's stand and pray.